welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. I should add, I'm Andrew, your Sorcerer's Stone. I'm Eric, your Nicholas Flamel. I'm Micah, your Hogwarts Express. Choo-choo. I can't believe we're still doing this. Laura hates this yeah, challenge. Really don't like just it. I hate this. it. <laughs> wow. Why? It's I'm not fun. creative enough for this. Laura. I'm Laura, your mirror of Erised. There oh. we go. <laughs> I do look at you uh, for my deepest desires. Absolutely. On today's episode, we are celebrating the 20th anniversary of Sorcerer's slash Philosopher's Stone hitting theaters. We're now in November. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years. And we're going to be talking about various aspects of the film today. We're going to be talking about uh, if we saw it in theaters and what that experience was like. We're going to read some initial reviews from critics from back in 2001. Can't wait. Some of them were shockingly critical about certain things you never would have dreamed of today, I don't think. (laughs) And then we'll talk about some scenes in the book that didn't make it into the movie. A couple other things as well. Before we get to that, a little show announcement, and this is actually some good news. Some of you may have noticed that in the podcast app that you use to listen to MuggleCast, not every single episode of the show has been available. Only the most recent 400 episodes have been available. Well, now, after lots of bugging our podcast host, every single episode in MuggleCast history is now available in our RSS feed. So you can scroll all the way back to the very, very beginning in August 2005 and listen to those early episodes if you want. A lot of people have been asking us to add those old episodes, and it hasn't been possible, actually. There's a limitation over at our podcast host. And, you know, a lot of podcasts aren't as old as us, so I can see why they haven't grown accustomed to hosting more than 400 episodes in the RSS feed. We understand. We're, we're, we're trendsetters. We're, we're breaking boundaries <laughs> here. Yes. Now, every episode in MuggleCast history is available in your favorite podcast app. All right. Time to turn to our discussion on Sorcerer's Stone slash Philosopher's Stone. I guess we'll just keep calling it Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> this is... <laughs> yes. We are American. Just don't tell. Sorcerer's Stone for all for of American. us. Yeah. I was going to say, don't tell Chris Rankin. Mm. So it will be 20 years this month since the Sorcerer's Stone movie hit theaters in both the US and UK, and I assume some other countries that came out in November 2001. And actually, a little teaser before we get to our discussion, next week, episode 538 will be a movie commentary for Sorcerer's Stone. You're going to be able to watch the first Harry Potter movie with us in real time. You got to bring your own copy of the movie, but you can sync up the movie with our commentary. We'll walk you through it at the beginning of the commentary, and then you can watch it with us. We thought this would be fun to do around the 20th anniversary. So do look forward to that next week. But panel, what were you all doing for the release of Sorcerer's Stone in November 2001? Eric, let's start with you. It really seems in some ways like yesterday and in some ways like a million years ago since seeing this movie. But I did see it in theaters on that Friday that it came out and I have the ticket stub to prove it. But actually, I kind of saw it by accident. I was not currently a Harry Potter fan at the time. I uh, would visit my friend Rand after school who lived by the school Um, and it was like a random Friday. I was over at his house after school had ended and his mother asked like, Hey, we're going to see the new Harry Potter movie that came out. Have you read the books? I said, you know, no, not really. I, I'd given Goblet of Fire a chance and thought this isn't for me. Well, so she was, the whole family was a huge, like they were really into Harry Potter. And so she was super stoked. And I just remember going to the theater with Rand and his sister and his mom and you know how it opens with like all that exposition where it's Dumbledore and McGonagall talking about all that stuff. And I, the story I tell is, you know, when McGonagall's talking about like uh, muggles, they're the worst sort of muggles imaginable. I'm like looking at his mom confused and she turns to me and goes, non-magic folk. Oh, really? <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> his mom was way, 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 way into it. And I just remember like it wasn't immediate that I became a Harry Potter fan after that. But like. Like months later, I was hit with like a wall of like, oh, holy crap, that was a good experience. Like that was a great fantasy movie. I was just blown away. It, it was I, like delayed reaction. I think I left the theater just stunned, uh, not sure what to expect. Do that you, was that was 
my entire introduction into Quidditch and everything that's introduced in Harry Potter came from that night 20 years ago. That's pretty wild. And also worth noting that, I mean, there had been four Harry Potter books released at yeah. that point. Well, and, and it was hard to ignore the popularity of, you know, kids in my grade were always carrying them around and, and talking about how awesome they were. And I just thought they were maybe too big for me. Like, especially Goblet of Fire was like 700 pages. I was just like, oh, I can never get into this. It's like crazy. Yeah. Who wants to read that much? Gross. But the movie was a wonderful intro, you know, in some ways. I, I, I kind of earlier may have felt like a not real fan for seeing the movie first, but I'll never forget it. It was a great experience. And, and I, you know, it, Rand's mother paid for my ticket. So th thanks to Mrs. Williamson um, all, all these years later. So how long after that movie did you finally read the first book? It was after the, I, I remember it vividly. I was at Kmart and this, this tells you what year it was, right? So I was at a Kmart and the film was out on DVD and I saw it on the shelf at Demon. It was basically like when Harry gets his wand, there's that rush of clouds. This is how like, I remember it. Because I was just like, oh, that, that movie. And oh my gosh, it was so good. And I got to get it. So I bought it on DVD, probably April or, or May of that. And then I immediately borrowed the books from like my closest friends. Like my lunch table buddies were all huge Harry Potter fans. And I think they had tried to talk to me about it. And I was just like, not interested. But so I borrowed book two from, uh, I think my friend Pat and I borrowed book three from my friend Justin's father. And then I bought that summer was when the paperback came out, I think the box set. And so I started by reading book two because I heard that movie one was, you know, a good enough summary. Oh, interesting. And that launched, that launched the whole thing. Then a couple months later, I typed all the books up and then later that, uh, <laughs> oh November I got hooked on, on MuggleNet and started contributing. So Remind us why you typed all the books up again. I wanted to do like find commands for like, because I could tell Easily there were like words and stuff. secrets yeah. and yeah, clues <laughs> and all that stuff. So And not illegally distribute them. Of no, course. No, I've never, I don't think I've given them to anybody. But Eric made the original Harry Potter ebook because remember, right. they were only, they only became ebooks like 10 years ago. <laughs> At Pottermore, right? <laughs> yes. That was one of the big, big features of Pottermore. You can get the ebooks. So I, I am excited to hear where you guys were 20 years ago. Ooh, wow. Okay. Well, thinking about this, I've begun questioning my memory a little bit because you say this was a Friday, right? I believe Presume. so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I okay. saw it on a Friday. Because I distinctly remember going to see this movie at night and going to school the next day and being dead tired oh. so i don't know if maybe my mom took me to a midnight release i'm trying to remember i can ask her she'll remember um i was in sixth grade i was so pumped for this movie y'all i was already obsessed with harry potter it was in the days where you know all of the official merchandise was based on mary grand prix illustrations so i had planners and notebooks and pencils and pens and like everything you can imagine. I had decorated my locker at school with Harry Potter stuff. Like I was so into it. I can't tell you how many times I watched the trailers for this movie oh. over and over and over again because I was so excited. Um, and I remember us going to see the movie and it <laughs> sounds really like try to say it, it's magical, but it really was. I mean, it was the first time that I remember going to the movies to see an adaptation of a book that I loved more than any other story I'd ever read up until that point. Um, so it, it really was quite an experience. And it was so bizarre to see this world that I had very clear images of in my head portrayed in sort of, you know, a real life way on screen and to see all of my favorite characters. Um, it really was great. My mom is also a big fan, so she enjoyed it just as much as I did. And it kind of started a tradition of all of us going to see the movies either on release day or for midnight releases. That's Being so sweet. an existing Harry Potter fan, did you do you remember feeling like they got anything wrong? I remember. And you know what's funny about this? I liked the movie. I walked away from it really liking it. Um, but I remember at the time feeling a sense of like, wow, it's like a copy of the book. <laughs> and 
to this day, that is still one of my biggest criticisms of the movie is to me, it feels like there was no creative liberty taken. And I'm very much a fan of when you're moving a a story from a book to film, not everything translates perfectly. Um, So there are some instances where I will give directors and producers some creative leeway in understanding that you have to adjust things for the storytelling medium of film. But Obviously, as an 11-year-old, I couldn't articulate that. So I just remember thinking, like, wow, they, like, did everything pretty Mm. much. But I was overall really satisfied with it. Do you feel like, kind of as a follow-up to that, if they weren't so true to the source material, it would have set a bad precedent for the series, given that it was the first movie? Yeah, I do agree with that. Absolutely. I think that with the first movie, it was really incumbent upon them to set a strong foundation for the rest of the series. And whatever other criticisms I might have of that movie, they did that. I mean, they firmly established who all of the characters were. Even if you weren't a book reader, you walked away from that movie knowing what this story was about, who the characters were, and what to expect. So I think it took pressure off some of the later movies because they weren't having to do quite so much character grounding, especially for the main characters, because that first movie really gave you a solid idea. Let's talk more about this later, because actually, in some of these reviews from critics from back in 2001, they're basically saying what you said, Laura. Micah, what did you do for the movie's release? So November 16th, 2001, I was probably at a Syracuse college basketball game, to be honest with you. (laughs) Wow, a basketball game at Syracuse University showed the Harry Potter film on like the big, was it on the scoreboard or what? On the Jumbotron inside the Carrier Dome. No. Oh, that's so awesome. That would have been cool, actually. But this is where I really would have loved to have been part of the fandom earlier. I was introduced to the series through the movies, just like you were, Eric. But I didn't start going to the theaters to see films until Goblet of Fire. I think I watched the first movie probably on DVD in my junior year of college because that would have been 2003. So I was late to the game. Uh, but I definitely remember being fulfilled by the movie. And, th- and that's what drew me in, right? That's what got me to watch the other movies that were out at the time and then to ultimately read the series. So I wanted to go last on purpose because I really don't have any memory of seeing the first <laughs> Harry Potter movie. That said, I was a fan by that point. Like I mentioned, four books had already been released by this point, And I was... I had gone to um, the Goblet of Fire Midnight book release the year prior, and my fourth grade teacher had read the first book to me, and I know I read Chamber of Secrets as soon as that one came out. So I was a fan very early on. Most of my movie memories start with Chamber of Secrets, particularly with the trailers. Laura, you mentioned the Sorcerer's Stone trailers, really liking those. I really loved the Chamber of Secrets trailers. I presume I saw it on opening night or um, that weekend, and... From what I think I can remember, I was pretty happy with it. I wanted it to be a loyal adaptation. I really don't have specific memories of this movie, I am sorry to say. It's all right. Join the club. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's look at these critic reviews of the movie from 2001. We'll start with a classic movie critic, Roger Ebert. He said... During Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, I was pretty sure I was watching a classic, one that will be around for a long time and make many generations of fans. It takes the time to be good. It doesn't hammer the audience with easy thrills, but cares to tell a story and to create its characters carefully. Like The Wizard of Oz and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Star Wars and E.T., it isn't just a movie, but a world with its own magical rules and some excellent Quidditch players. So that's just a sample of the review. I like that. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, you read this review and I really feel like it, it has stood the test of time comparing it to, okay, maybe The Wizard of Oz is a stretch, but like Star Wars and E.T. in terms of like sci-fi major titles that went on to be huge successes and have aged very well, you know, 
Roger Ebert nailed it. It's a bit surprising too. I mean, Siskel and Ebert were like the top critics back in the day, and I'm surprised he didn't find fault with anything really in Sorcerer's Stone. They must have caught him on a good day because I do remember him being very harsh on certain movies. Maybe not Harry Potter movies, but he could be he could be fierce when he wanted to. I think overall he was he was very pleased with it. He gave it four out of four stars. So wow, yeah. yeah. And this is from Empire. The standout sequence is the Gryffindor versus Slytherin Quidditch match, a fast-paced medieval rollerball with broomsticks. <laughs> it soars where the Phantom Menace's pod race stalled on the third lap. So Ooh. Empire's saying it's better than Ooh. Star Wars. They go on, <laughs> Philosopher's Stone has one advantage over so many other blockbusters. It already knows that it's the first in a series, so it doesn't have to become a self-contained hit movie before its sequels can receive the green light. This means it deliberately takes its time setting up the characters and the scenario before, like the book, pulling in a quest come who done it plot to provide a climax. I thought this was an interesting one too, just because it is a great point. You know, this did go on to be eight movies and they knew they had a certain story they were working with. I think mm-hmm. that we have to revisit based on, you know, this snippet, we have to revisit how bold it was for them to you know, take this on understanding that if they were successful, I think with the first movie, they had only contracted out through the third film. Um, So they didn't have people under contract for all, you know, at the time they were probably thinking seven films, but we know it ended up being eight. Um, And to cast such young children in these roles and hope that like they grew into their acting chops and that, you know, there wouldn't be any major problems with them as, as can so often happen with child stars. I mean, it's pretty risky when you think about it and kind of miraculous that the core cast stuck through all the way from 2001 to the very end. Definitely. Yeah. And this this Empire article also is just like a, that real peek behind the curtain of how films are made. And it reminded me that Chamber of Secrets started filming, according to Google, three days after the release of the first film. So they went right into like and they, they were they were in like pre-production and went into filming at the same time the first movie was coming out. They were they were really chugging through. And yeah, that does change what you can put in a movie. And that does change how much time is devoted to certain plot points and things. And it's really interesting also to see them single out Quidditch because now we look back on it. I think the effects have aged particularly well, but that was something that audiences hadn't seen too much of. This was before the Transformers movie. This was before any of like what, what we would consider like modern CG action sci- like sequences. Um, it's just pretty interesting. Definitely. And I do like how they call attention to the mystery aspect of the movie, because really at its core, that's what most of these films are. You're trying to figure out who's behind what's going on. And that lent itself obviously to the development or the writing of the uh, Corman Strike novels too. And and I think why people like those so much as well. But um, yeah, I, I agree with what you said too, Eric, about Quidditch. And it looks like Quidditch is really called out in a number of these reviews. And I'm just wondering, going into yeah. the movie, was that something you all were looking forward to? I mean, obviously, I didn't I, see it till years later, and I didn't even know what it was or that it was going to be in the movie. I, I guess so. It's funny that they're all very excited about Quidditch because then later in the film series, you see a lot less of it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, oh, everybody like that. Right. I guess we won't do more of it. <laughs> it's very expensive. I have to say, going into the movie, I remember being most excited to see the detention scene in the Forbidden Forest. Oh, um, just because that that chapter was really captivating to me as a child. It still is. I know we talked quite a bit about that um, when we were reviewing Sorcerer's Stone. What was that a year ago? But I, I went into it really excited for that. And obviously, there were some changes made to that for the movie. But I still walked away feeling really satisfied with how they delivered on that. So. Yeah, isn't Neville in it in the books? And he's not there in the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big change. Eric, you made a point about them filming Chamber of Secrets right after the first movie hit theaters. I bet another reason why they wanted to quickly film all these movies is because the kids were growing up. And, you know, they're kind of against the clock in that regard. For puberty. 
Like that yeah. happened in movie two. You can tell like immediately. Well, even in, the, yeah. even like at the end of movie one, I think some of Dan's lines, you can tell his voice is starting to change. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, lots more fun to be had today, but first, are you ready for mashed potato season, aka turkey with gravy and cranberry sauce season, aka every kind of pie and more season? Me Undies is here with the softest and stretchiest undies in the game, so you can be ready for seconds and thirds. They are this week's sponsor. MeUndies believes that comfort is about more than what's touching your skin. It's about feeling comfortable in your skin, even post-Thanksgiving dinner. Seriously, these are some of the most comfortable items of clothing you'll ever try, and now's probably the best time. With cooler temps upon us here in the Northern Hemisphere, cloud-like comfort awaits you, and once you try them, you will wonder where they've been all your life. With adventurous prints to choose from and plenty of ways to match everyone in the family, give your gratitude some attitude this Thanksgiving season with MeUndies. They have undies and loungewear made out of soft, breathable, stretchy fabrics that are perfect for everything from pre-dinner activities to post-dinner naps. Seriously, you won't even care if the turkey's a little dry with undies this comfortable. Available in sizes extra small through 4XL, in tons of styles, prints, and fabrics, Me Undies has a little something for everyone at the table. MeUndies also has a great offer for our listeners. For any first-time purchasers, you get 15% off and free shipping. MeUndies also has a promise. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, you can return your order for a full refund within 45 days. To get 15% off your first order, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com MuggleCast. That's MeUndies.com MuggleCast. And make sure you use that URL so they know that we sent you. MeUndies.com MuggleCast. All right, so this review from USA Today... The much here's Quidditch again. The much anticipated Quidditch scene emerges more dangerous and hyperkinetic than the literary version, amped up no doubt to satisfy a young audience accustomed to a steady diet of video games and eye-popping special effects, <laughs> and a menacing chess match with exploding life-size pieces may be too intense for very young ones. Oh, stop! Ooh. Oh, please. Okay. <laughs> hey, thank you, USA Today, for oh, warning parents bad? everywhere, for warning us all that this film is. Is maybe too intense for the little Watch ones. out for a chess set. Yeah. But buckle up, everybody. It's chess. Don't... Did y'all read the books? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Quidditch yeah. is yeah. very dangerous in the books. What are you talking about? I know. About? That part I particularly disagree <laughs> with here, that it's any bit more kinetic or eye-popping than it is in the Never book. mind the evil dark wizard growing out of the back of the professor's head. You won't be scared by that. The chess match is too violent. The chess match. Well, and then this next line, similarly, John Williams's overly insistent score lacks subtlety and bludgeons us with crescendos. Shut up. Okay, there I will kind of agree. (laughs) There I will kind of agree. Really? Yes, because this line is exactly what's been fueling the last six months of TikTok Harry Potter discourse. The the whole chess scene, for instance, is, you know, Night to A5. It's absolutely like, okay, John Williams, yeah, a little much in this film, but that's what makes it iconic. Yeah. Right. I I've always been a really big fan of what John Williams brought to the table. So I call BS on this. But in this film, you know, like sweeping, if they're just on the grounds of Hogwarts too, it's kind of the same loud music. You know, it's a different theme, but it's still very much, you know, it's all harp and string and like, yeah, it introduced us to the world. He was, I don't think he did anything wrong, but I can see the critic being like, there's always music. What the heck? They just called it <laughs> insistent. This is the man who, I'm not saying he's infallible, but the man has scored some of the most iconic movie franchises in history. I Mm -hmm. think he created a few (laughs) songs in this series that people have enjoyed. I'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah. USA Today also said, though the film will undoubtedly undoubtedly please the young viewers who flock to it ultimately many of the book's readers may wish for a more magical incarnation so and like we always say here on the show now there's a lot of magic in this movie compared to the later movies you know that's one of the things we really like about these early movies so that's interesting to read in hindsight right 
And uh, Hollywood Reporter says, in striving to include nearly every major episode from the book, Columbus's movie clocks in at over two and a half hours. While this may create problems for parents of restless youngsters, the greater problem is this. Harry Potter feels like a movie in which its makers are afraid to make a single creative move. <gasps> Rowling's books is wholly writ. No liberties are allowed. Consequently, the film, while slavishly faithful, contains little innovative juice outside of its visual richness. So, Laura, there's a point that agrees with you. Yeah, see that this is what um, 11-year-old me was struggling to articulate in terms of my feelings. Um, But again, it's really nuanced because I actually did really enjoy the movie. Um, I think it's okay to enjoy something, but be critical of it, too. I think this could be a classic example of that they do their job really, really well. Nobody knows what, like, how much work went into it. Because getting, like, 11-year-olds, any behind the scenes now that I see of, like, Columbus had to, like, wrestle those kids into doing their lines. The fact that, like, you know, Emma Watson is is absolutely Hermione personified in that first movie is just like, wow, to get those performances, he, he had to do a lot of work. To build Hogwarts, what Hogwarts visually looks like, to actually match what's in most people's heads, that's hard. That's really, really difficult. But the, mm-hmm. so to call the the film slavishly faithful, okay, sure. But but that actually is work. That's really, really, really hard to oh, yeah. come up with something that could be even called faithful. Because if they do it half ass, it's not going to be even considered that, even if they're reciting every right. line in the books. And, and think about how hypercritical we are as the movies have gone on and been produced and we'll talk ad nauseum about how they left out spew they left out winky they left out the marauders backstory and on and on and on it goes i think being faithful to the material particularly in the first movie was really important and Mm. because nothing else existed prior to this i think it's unfair to say that Rowling's book is wholly writ and no liberties are allowed. There's nothing <laughs> to compare it to. Yeah. They also said all other technical credits are top notch, save for John Williams's score, a great clanging, banging music box that simply will not shut up. <laughs> okay. How about you shut up, Hollywood yeah. reporter? Yeah. I, I just can't imagine somebody saying this about a John Williams score now. John right. Williams, shut up. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> He's a legend. It feels like they're looking Shoot, for something. I want John Williams to score the soundtrack to my life. Are you kidding? Yeah. You know how epic that would be? You want a clanging and banging score for your life. <laughs> But I just I I never understood the argument that it's too loyal to the book because that's what we want. And it's not like the adaptation was a bad adaptation. Everything that they adapted, which was pretty much everything in the case of this book, was really good. It's not like the scene suffered because they were straight from the book. I I don't think. But, you know, already it's interesting in these uh, interviews or in these reviews to see Hollywood clamoring for more to see kind of film discourse to actually penalize the film for not having more of an auteur director who's going to like take creative liberties. It's it's so interesting to see even as early as the first film. The second film, I get it because the second film is also slavishly faithful. But like, so I can see those criticisms being like, yeah, you know, love to love to actually do something at all different. But the first film, that's way too early for that, I think. And one other thing I'll just add is that with the first film, isn't it also important to be as faithful as possible? Because you don't know what is essential to the rest of the series. Yeah. 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 And you're telling fans of the books, and there were millions at that point, we're going to take this adaptation seriously. We're going to respect the source material. So I feel like it was also like a, a, a signal. Well, and I think that they were working really closely with J.K. Rowling, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that she worked really closely with the various directors to kind of nudge them in the right direction if they were doing something that wasn't right or if they were doing something that would really impact a later plot point. The fact that 
this movie was coming out before the series was even finished was also a risk we have to consider. I mean, you have to think about the fact that they didn't really know where they were going. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't know the end point of the journey, right? Or very few people did. So, yeah. And you look at <laughs> you look at now Game of Thrones, which didn't know the ending either because the final books aren't out yet and they botched it. Mm-hmm. I think George R. R. Martin pointed them in the right direction, but the TV show got ahead of the books that they were yeah. based on and it didn't end well in a lot of people's opinions. And it's a hard so, job. That's another perfect example of particularly with the first season, maybe you could even argue the second season it being so true to the source material. And then it just started to go in so many different directions that it was hard to find a way to bring the story back together, I think, in a way that fans were happy with. Mm -hmm. So we also have this review from Time, but it's kind of similar to some of the other very critical reviews. So we can skip it. But I thought it would be fun to hop in a time machine and go look at what people were saying back then. I think uh, one other point on adapting and staying loyal, I feel like with the later movies, especially, that's all fans were asking for, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like they split Deathly Hallows into two and people were still like, you know, you weren't loyal enough. Mm -hmm. Splitting Mm -hmm. in two obviously helped. And we say that about if they ever do a if they ever reboot it as a TV show. I want it to be loyal to a T and include everything from the books. I think at the end of the day, there's just no pleasing everyone. Yep. And that's okay. They don't have to set out to make a movie that's going to make everyone happy, right? They're thinking about what is a product that is going to satisfy the most people, not just book fans, but just butts in seats in theaters. And this film, by the way, I just did a Google search on the box office, and this film has made $1.007 billion. (laughs) I guess worldwide currently. I think a big part of it being a timeless classic, that's something that keeps coming up in all of these reviews, is that it really captured the birth of a phenomenon, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. It was also a weird time. I mean, we have to remember, like, here in this country, it was fall of 2001, right? Yeah. So it, it was a weird time, and it was nice to... A fair point get to experience something so nostalgic and so hopeful. Oh my goodness. You know know what? I just, I just Googled this and it came out. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone came out a month before the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh And I, I remember seeing that in theaters, but like a month later, and that really kicked off the huge cinematic adaptation of fantasy literature. Mm -hmm. Obviously Lord of the Rings has been around a lot longer than Harry Potter, but in a way, they were brothers and sisters during the movie releases. And that's actually why it was so interesting growing up, becoming a Harry Potter fan at the same time Lord of the Rings were coming out. Because you also had like all these people becoming Lord of the Rings fans and starting Lord of the Rings fan sites, like the One Ring and all this stuff. And like they really felt like they were contemporaries, even though literary-wise they weren't. The films very much speak some of the same languages. They speak to the same thing. Definitely, yeah. Before we continue, this week's episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, and we've got free food coming your way. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that is why it's America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, including vegetarian, calorie smart, in gourmet options, providing plenty of variety. Their food is as good as anything you have ever tried during an opening feast at Hogwarts. I love everything I've made from them because they are original ideas and quite often include really fun twists you never would have thought of. And as fall transitions to winter, there's nothing better than cozying up with a comforting home-cooked meal. Recipes like chicken ramen and turkey ragu gnocchi make it a no-brainer to skip on paying for takeout or those high fees from the delivery apps. And HelloFresh is a can't-beat value. Even at full price, it's over 30% cheaper than grocery stores. And with this holiday deal I'm about to give you, it is time to try for even less. Go to HelloFresh.com Muggle14 and use code Muggle14 for up to 14 free meals and 3 free gifts. Again, 
Go to HelloFresh.com slash Muggle14 and use code Muggle14 for up to 14 free meals and three free gifts. Make sure you use this URL and code so they know that we sent you. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit and my number one way to improve my evenings. Please check them out. You will not be disappointed. So let's look at, speaking of the adaptation, let's talk about the scenes in the book that actually didn't make it into the movie. And there aren't a ton, but there are a few. First of all, the very first chapter, uh-oh, we're off to a bad start. <laughs> you sit down in the theater with a copy of the book. You're ready to go page by page. Wait, the whole first chapter is missing. Of course, the chapter where we're following the Dursleys after Voldemort's defeated, we don't meet Harry yet. And um, I guess it's Vernon. He's wondering, why are all these people dressed oddly out in the street and in a jovial yeah. mood? So that's all gone. Speaking of the Dursleys, Let's look at who took Harry to the Hogwarts Express, platform nine and three quarters. In the movie, Hagrid just leaves Harry for dead to go and figure it out himself. You know, <laughs> you'll figure it out. You'll run into some family, hopefully. <laughs> he had to get to the pub or something. In the book, the Dursleys actually take Harry to platform nine and three quarters, thanks in part to the Dursleys needing to go to London anyway to get Dudley's tail removed. So that's not like a particularly critical change but no. in hindsight now i'm like why did hagrid not take him <laughs> yeah well it's yeah in the movie it's hard to say that there's actually like a month between harry's birthday and when he has to show up in Diagon Alley to get his stuff you know like the time just goes by real quick probably a pacing thing nobody's saying that but i think pacing, you know if i could pacing. excuse these changes pacing they didn't catch on to using the pacing excuse until like movie five that's when they were yeah. like oh this is perfect we can excuse yeah. everything with this one word <laughs> <laughs> another big change actually this one I, i'm disappointed by the sorting hat song and we never mm. got a song in any of the movies no nope. that would have been great i think they were probably struggling with how they would portray a singing hat on screen without it looking stupid. And I'm not saying there there isn't a way they could have done it because I think there was. But putting ourselves in 2001 and thinking about how might this visual have looked. And also, I'm sure they're, you know, they had budgets involved and they're like, do we want to spend the budget on Quidditch or do we want to spend it on a singing hat? <laughs> a ratty old well singing hat. <laughs> What will the reviewers at USA Today write about? <laughs> Good thing John oh, Williams man. didn't score the Hats song. Oh, my God. Maybe it would have gotten a better review. Oh, maybe they could have done the hat as like a more like spoken word instead of a song. Mm. That would have been hip. Oh, you may not think I'm pretty. <laughs> Another big change was Peeves. No Peeves yeah. whatsoever. Now they had cast him. And I think they shot a couple scenes, but ultimately yep. they decided yep. to cut it. Personally, I was never like a huge Peeves fan, and we did get ghosts anyway, so I'm not too hung up on this one. I think it bothers Eric, though. It's interesting because I also, that's a hard thing to quantify because I didn't really understand the point of Peeves in the books. He like famously doesn't have a, he never had like this huge plot point. There was never some big mystery unless I'm forgetting something. So the fact that he's just there but wasn't in the first movie, kind of told me in advance everything I ever needed to know about Peace. He wasn't important overall. And that's kind of my opinion of it. But he's the idea that these films later became so streamlined that they couldn't even have like Dumbledore's funeral. That problem with the film adaptation started with the excision of Peeves. The fact that they couldn't take the time to show some like character that wasn't ultimately going to end up part of the main, main, main plot is it's the first example of that. I think is the, is them cutting peeves from the movies. Like these films were on such a tight, strict filmmaking schedule that they, they couldn't have any fun. And by all accounts is particularly the account of Chris Rankin, Rick Mayles peeves would have been an absolute hoot. Do you think because they did have nearly headless Nick and, they obviously cast the other ghosts, at least in that first movie, and then some of them obviously come back later on, that it, w it was just too much. Like adding a poltergeist, people don't differentiate between Peeves and Nearly Headless Nick. At least the average moviegoer is not going to. I think that's right. 
Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think, and and there's enough humor in John Cleese's Nearly Headless Nick, one of the best, I right. think, like underrated castings of the first film is John Cleese, um, yeah. British royalty. I know, and it's so disappointing that they ended up not continuing with that character in the movies. I mean, yeah. what was the last movie we got Nearly Headless Nick? Uh, movie three, maybe. Yeah, it was one of the earlier ones. Man. Another change involved Norbert. In the movie, Norbert was sent off to Romania by Dumbledore, whereas in the book, it was more there was a, it was a whole thing. Harry and Ron yeah. head to the astronomy tower to pass Norbert off to Charlie. Now, of course, Charlie's only appearance in any of the Harry Potter movies ended up being in that family photo in Prisoner of Azkaban. So movie one would have been Charlie's big chance to appear and he didn't get it. Unfortunately, I would have liked to have seen because Quidditch was such a popular thing. I really would have liked to have seen Charlie's friends suspending the dragon in between their brooms, like Mm -hmm. on what was it like a hammock or something to take him off to Romania to, to be with Charlie. Like that would have been interesting visual to me. The reason they cut Charlie and simplified this plot line was because they already had so many characters to introduce anyway. Yeah. They had a bunch mm-hmm. of Weasleys anyway. Of course, everybody yeah. at Hogwarts. There's a lot of world building in this movie, and Charlie was just a step too far. Yep. Here's another one. This one isn't very big to me. I guess we could read into this and be like, oh, that would have been more meaningful. In the Mirror of Error said, in the book, Harry sees his entire family, whereas in the movie, uh, he just sees his mom and dad. I guess... It's just as effective if it's just his mom and dad. But it also would have been cool to see his entire extended family. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. They also didn't have a ton of time to spend on the Mirror of Erised. I mean, think about those scenes. They weren't too terribly long when you, I mean, when you're experiencing them in the book, it's a much longer affair, right? Yeah. And finally, the potion test during the adventure to yeah. get the Sorcerer's Stone. In the movie, the potion test is just nowhere to be found. Whereas in the book, obviously it's there. I didn't mind this because they still had three challenges anyway. So yeah, the challenges that they kept in the movie are extremely fun. And this would have been like watching Hermione do math. Like, (laughs) well, and like, you know how the TV show like BBC Sherlock revolutionized his whole mind palace thing when he like does the calculations and like Mm -hmm. showed text Mm -hmm. messages on screen showing up. Nobody thought about that like that. Watching Hermione do the math in the way that that was later constructed in 2015 would have been cool, but there there was just no way to visually make that interesting, I don't think, in the movie. And the stakes were like so high with these huge walls of flames. I'm like, okay, one of our teachers is going to just poison us, Harry. Like, pretty interesting. Mm. Yeah, Snape's scene was boring. I mean, his task was boring, excuse me. It, just, it wouldn't have excited, to your oh. point, it wouldn't have excited anybody, you know? like yeah. yeah, those are good points. I love it in the book, though, because Hermione has a Same. point about, you know, the best wizards not having an ounce of logic. On a related note, there were a bunch of scenes shot for the movie that were eventually cut, and we actually did a whole bonus MuggleCast on those, and that is available on our Patreon, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We'll also include a link to that bonus MuggleCast in today's show notes. So now I want to talk about the box office. And the reason I wanted to talk about this was because the movie broke records left and right. And like I mentioned earlier, four books had already been released. So the the fandom was already established and people really turned out to see the first adaptation. Let's start with the UK. The movie set a record single day gross of 3.6 million pounds, beating Toy Story 2 which had just been released two years prior. It also broke the record for highest opening weekend ever, both including and excluding previews, making 16.3 million pounds with previews. It set a second weekend record of 8.4 million pounds. It made a total of 66.1 million pounds in the UK alone, making it the country's second highest grossing film of all time behind Titanic until it was beaten by... Mamma Mia. Here we go. Wow, again. <laughs> Wait, Mama, the second one? Mamma Mia beat Potter. No, the first one. 
Oh, okay. I'm just yeah, singing yeah. the song. Yeah, I know. Well, that's hard because they did that clever thing with the title. I know, anyway. I know, I know. Thank you for that clarification, though. Yeah, 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 yeah right. <laughs> so in North America, it made $32.3 million on opening day, breaking a single-day record set by Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Returns, and it made $90.3 million during its first weekend, again, breaking the record for highest opening weekend of all time, beating the Lost World Jurassic Park. So I, I thought it was so interesting how Harry Potter very quickly took down records set by Jurassic Park, Star Wars, these other John Williams titles, by the way. <laughs> and Spielberg, Spielberg too. I mean, you know, yeah. Jurassic Park, like the Lost Things, Spielberg movies. Isn't it Phantom yes. Menace, though? What did I say? Oh, Phantom Returns. Yeah, sorry. I don't know why. Bat- I... You're thinking Batman. Batman Returns. Well, no, the... Uh... The something returns. There's one Star Wars movie where somebody returns, right? No? Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. (laughs) Somebody returned. The Jedi returns. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did I say the Lost World Jurassic Park? I meant Jurassic Park Dinosaurs Return. Um, So adjusted for inflation, Sorcerer's Stone currently ranks 80th on the list of highest all-time domestic film grosses. 80th actually isn't that high up for Harry Potter, but I'm kind of blown away. You said that is adjusted for inflation. That is nuts. Yes. And that's actually the best Harry Potter movie on the list. Next is Deathly Hallows Part 2, which comes in at 120th. Wow. So that's that. Box office records were beaten and it was a huge success. So one fun thing that we thought we could do, and I think we may have done this on episodes in the past recasting some of the characters from other movies. But let's think about Sorcerer's Stone specifically, because this is where a lot of our main characters get their introduction to us as viewers. And so I wanted to just ask the group generally, assuming the film was made this year in 2021, who do we think would be cast in some of these roles. And we also asked our listeners over on Twitter and we'll read some of those responses as well, but just opening it up, thinking of some of the main characters in the Harry Potter series, particularly from Sorcerer's Stone, who could you see in these roles in present day? Are we going to set aside the British actor rule? I think we should, right? We can set it aside. Timothy Chalamet for Harry Potter. <laughs> no, he's way too old. Way too old. Nah, he still looks like a 12-year-old. <laughs> I know a, a really popular um, casting recommendation, which I think is probably reflected in the results we got on Twitter, is um, Adam Driver for Snape. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It definitely yeah. is reflected on Twitter. I like Benedict Cumberbatch for Snape. Oh, that'd be so cool. Yeah, that'd be great. How about Jason Moma for um, Hagrid? (laughs) (laughs) He would do it. He would actually be awesome in that role. (laughs) He would. How about for Dumbledore? Obviously, we've gotten Jude Law in the Fantastic Beast series. I was thinking maybe Morgan Freeman. Oh, That that would actually be cool. That would be like the next most iconic thing next to like playing God in Bruce Almighty's like if if Morgan Freeman is Dumbledore, I think that would be amazing. Yeah. For Dumbledore though, I'm going to sound like a broken record every time we talk about casting Dumbledore. Jared Harris, man. Um, You know, the late Richard Harris's son who I just did the math and Richard Harris was 70 um, when Harry Potter was being filmed. Jared Harris now, although it feels like we've been shipping him as in this role for 10 years, is now actually 60 years old. And uh, I think he would bring a lot of the fire that, you know, Michael Gammon was later credited for bringing back to the role of Dumbledore. Um, He's an amazing actor. If you've seen him on anything recently, he's just so impressive. And I would love to see him get a chance to do Dumbledore before I die. How about Tom Hanks for Dumbledore? Yes. Fatherly (laughs) figure. Yeah. He's too young. (laughs) Uh, He's in his 50s or 60s now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What role would I cast Tom Hanks in in Harry Potter? It would be like Daedalus Diggle or something. It would be something inconsequential. But you look at it and you go, that's Tom Hanks. So I kind of like this. And Eric, I think you might 
be familiar with this actor. Um, Frumpy but super smart in our Discord is saying, okay, hear me out. Peter Capaldi as Dumbledore. Oh, yes. Yes. 100%. If if you've seen Peter Capaldi and Doctor Who or the BBC series In the Thick of It, I think he latest, he was like Brainiac in one of the Suicide Squad movies. Anyway, well, he can be belligerent. He can be forceful, but he's got a lot of good energy. And I think he would be superb for it. Also, he, I think he's Scottish. Mm. Yeah. You know, another actor, when you said belligerent, you made me think, Eric, for Dumbledore. What about James Cosmo? We've seen him as the Lord Commander in Game of Thrones. He's been Father Christmas in Narnia. He's in his dark <laughs> materials. So he's done a lot of those types of roles before. He obviously has a pretty long list of accolades and and movie appearances, but I think he could be good for that role as well. I think he could be. I'd I'd be worried about casting too old to play the role. Um, But then again, for McGonagall, I was going to suggest that Dame Maggie Smith just do it again. (laughs) Um, So there's that. (laughs) I want Viola Davis for McGonagall. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, she's who I talked about back when we did our casting recommendations way back when. And I, I still stand by it. I think she would be amazing. Uh, you guys will probably like this, uh, especially if you're a Hamilton fan. For Quirrell, since we are talking specifically about the first movie, I thought Jonathan Groff. Oh, yeah, I can <laughs> oh see that. God. That would be amazing. You know, he has That's very so Ian Hart vibes. Or, or yeah. yeah, I think. How about a, like Judy way. Dench? That'd be kind of cool. To have her as That's McGonagall? Quirrell? <laughs> no, oh, that's okay. sorry. <laughs> Eric. You mentioned Quirrell. Jumping over to Twitter, we heard from Fully Vaxxed Let's Have Snacks, who says, Tilda Swinton as Quirrell. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so funny because like you mentioned James Cosmo in, in Game of Thrones or like being in Narnia. Tilda Swinton also in Narnia. These That film came out like, what, 2003, 2004? Like any of the actors that were working then, I, I hate to think we're stuck in this rut of only actors of that era, but who are the middle-aged to slightly higher actors of tomorrow, meaning today? This is what like we, ne- we needed Twitter's help with, too, like figuring out who's acting in shows now so that we don't keep suggesting these people who could have been in the movies to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Judy Dench, like uh, Ian McKellen, I'm sure somebody suggested at some point, you know, like who's now going to be. And that, that's why for Harry, Ron, Hermione, Draco... All the kids, I kind of want unknowns. I I, re- I really want them yeah. to be lightning in a bottle. Right. Exactly what was captured the first time with the Harry Potter film that made it so special. Just total. It, it's really hard to identify young actors right now because I just think we don't necessarily see enough of them probably in the movies and the shows that we're watching. And just to uh, Andrew, you mentioned Timothy Chalamet earlier. Kyle Barker suggested him as Severus Snape. Okay. Like a young Snape, like possibly age appropriate Snape um, would be pretty crazy because Snape was what in his thirties when Harry was born. But the, uh, the interesting thing about young Snape. So I, I didn't want to cast uh, older actors in Harry, Ron and Hermione, but I did think for young marauders, the entire cast of stranger things, like the children, oh, the kids, that'd be cool. Um, like Finn Wolfhard, <laughs> yeah. Gatton Marazzo, Noah Schnapp, Caleb McLaughlin, and I don't know, Millie Bobby Brown as Lily, um, would be awesome. That would be cool. Yeah, so, Finn give, gives me like major serious vibes. Yeah, mm. yeah, I agree. Noah can be James, um, Caleb as Lupin, and Gatton as as Peter. We would make Peter sympathetic, which would be great. <laughs> so a few other submissions over on Twitter. Our friend Kyle says John Cena is Hagrid. <laughs> oh, you know who'd be good in it? Uh, who plays uh, Drax the Destroyer in Guardians of the Galaxy? Oh, yeah. I'm forgetting his name. Oh, but... shoot. I'm forgetting his name. He's amazing. Okay, because he has uh, Dave Bautista, because I heard he uh, also has a pug that is very, like, he's very a lover of animals, and he just rescued, like, another dog. And so I, I thought immediately of Dave Bautista when you mentioned that. All right. Uh, Pineapple Pizza Guy has a whole list for us. John Malkovich as Dumbledore. Yeah, Timothy like Chalamet it. as Snape. Storm Reed <laughs> as Hermione. Noah Jupe as Harry. 
Jeremy Ray Taylor as Ron and Jacob Tremblay as Draco. Oh, okay. I am loving John Malkovich as Dumbledore because we're so used to seeing John Malkovich being the villain, right? Mm. I think he would bring something really interesting to a Dumbledore portrayal. Yeah. We we <laughs> always would talk about John Malkovich as a possible uh, Salazar Slytherin. I think we've talked about that on the show before. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think the person who plays Salazar in the portraits at the theme park looks just like John Malkovich. He does. Very does. similar. Yeah. Yep. Uh, one suggestion in here from Eric Ridgway is Freddie Highmore as Harry Potter, but I think Freddie's a little too old now. Yeah. I think we could probably find a role he's for him grown. though. Uh, he's he's become a great actor. He was also in the Spiderwick Chronicles. The producers of that franchise were hoping to make that the next Harry Potter. Never was, but uh, Emily Machado agreed with Laura Adam Driver as Snape. But how about this? Megan Crawford says Penn Badgley as Snape because <laughs> Penn Badgley okay. is extremely chilling in You, which is on Netflix. Yeah, Very he's good Netflix creepy. show. If yeah. folks haven't seen it. Oh. But he's too handsome for Snape. They would really <laughs> no, have you to. you can never be too handsome Are you calling Alan Rickman not handsome? Mm-hmm. Give the people what they want, Laura. Alan Rickman is distinguished. Mm. <laughs> Penn Bagley is like, he's pretty. Yeah. There's a difference. Okay. Okay. Well, who's the actor who plays in Lucifer? That lead actor. I want him for Snape. It's Tom Ellis. And just one more here to wrap it up from Jeff Skellington, who says, I would put Peeves in the movies and cast Rowan Atkinson. Okay, cool. <sighs> okay. Justice yeah. for Peeves. Yep. We have some great Sorcerer's Stone movie impersonations coming up for you in just a minute. But first, we want to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by Quip. Good health starts with good habits, and Quip makes it easy and sets you up for success by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to care for your mouth. And let's face it, we know everyone needs a good cleaning after all of that Halloween candy. So let's talk about the Quip Electric Toothbrush. It's loved by over 7 million mouths, including mine, and has timed sonic vibrations with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean, a lightweight and sleek design for both adults and kids, with no wires or bulky charger to weigh you down. And it's got a multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. All this for the best price amongst all electric toothbrushes. They've got stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25 so that you won't be paying through the teeth for better oral health. Dentists recommend electric toothbrushes because they can do a better job than those manual ones. If you don't have an electric one, this is the best way to jump on board. Beyond the brush, Quip has everything you need to build a complete routine. They've got anti-cavity toothpaste in mint or watermelon that helps prevent cavities, and they've got refillable gum that's sugar-free, has long-lasting mint flavor, and comes with a dispenser. If you go to getquip.com slash muggle right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill of any refillable product that Quip offers for free at getquip.com slash muggle. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash muggle. Get one today and have a smile that will leave even Lockhart jealous. Quip, the good habits company. So we thought to wrap up today's discussion, we could do this segment we do from time to time. Let's do our best impressions of some of our favorite quotes from the first Harry Potter movie. So starting off, I shouldn't have said that. I should not have said that. From Hagrid. (laughs) Uh, I'll follow up with another Hagrid quote when he's bursting down the door. Sorry about that. (laughs) That was good. That was very good. And then Vernon says, I I demand that you leave at once, sir. You're breaking and entering. Dry up, Dursley, you great prune. Wow. Somebody just start playing the movie? Wow. Yeah. (laughs) How do I follow that? I don't know how I follow that. Good luck. Yeah, I'm going to need it. Um, One of these uh, famous quotes from Ron, she needs to sort out her priorities. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, another iconic line here, but from uh, one of our favorite Moody professors, although not Professor Moody, Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. Ooh, I, I felt like a chill in my back. All the temperature came out of the room. Very nice, Laura. This one's from the end of the movie. It's it's two different characters. You liar! Kill him! <laughs> That was really I think good. about that one all the time for some reason. <laughs> Do you just walk around the house doing that? Yeah. You liar! Kill him! <laughs> I gotta say, Trelawney and Voldemort, man, you, you got it down. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a rare skill. Yeah. Um, I changed what mine was going to be because I actually love my own sorting hat impression. Hmm. Difficult, very difficult. Plenty of courage, I see. Not a bad mind, either. There's talent, oh yes, and a thirst to prove yourself. But where to put you? Not Slytherin, eh? Are you sure? You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head, and Slytherin will help you on your way to greatness. There's no doubt about that. No? Well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor! Very now nice. do the song. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this one is from Draco Malfoy. Think my name's funny, do you? No need to ask you yours, red hair and a hand-me-down robe. You must be a Weasley. Oh, Classic. Said with such disdain. Mike Tannenbaum for Draco, everybody. <laughs> That's my new cast. Uh, this is from after the iconic troll scene in the girls' bathroom. From Professor McGonagall, five points will be rewarded to each of you for sheer dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one I think about all the time for some reason. Night to E5. <laughs> you and That's everyone it. on TikTok. Really? Oh, yes. man. I need to look. <laughs> Are we done? Is that all? Yep. Okay. That's fun. All right. Yeah. It's always fun to do this. And I'm sure we'll do them next week during our Sorcerer's Stone movie commentary. Again, stay tuned for that. You'll be able to bring your own movie and uh, sync it up with our commentary. It'll be a lot of fun. And by the way, we've done a few of these commentaries at this point, and they're all available at MuggleCast.com. Just click on Must Listens at the top, and we have them all grouped there. If you have any feedback about today's discussion, you can contact us by writing or sending a voice message to mugglecast.gmail.com. For the latter, just record a message using the voice memo app on your phone. You can also use the contact form on mugglecast.com, or you can leave a voicemail on our phone. The number is one nine two zero three muggle That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. And now it is time for Quiz Itch. Last week's question... What is the name of Aragog's wife? The correct answer, and this was actually from the book, Mosag, M-O-S-A-G. I uh, always forget that's in the book, but he totally says it as a throwaway line on page 273. I forgot too. Did you ever look up what that means? I just looked it up right now. A female of utmost ugliness who has little or no respect for her outward appearance. Oh my. Jeez. That's interesting. Okay. That's on the nose. <laughs> uh, well, correct answers. We get a lot of submissions. Your mom, as in you apostrophe R-E, Laura's fan, Voldemort's lost nose, Buff Daddy, Weird Sisters, Shara Solomon, Dobby's Tea Cozy, Zelda, Maddie, Dobby's friend in the kitchen, the Muggle Baker's Ugly Pimple, Tchaikovsky Wants Coffee, the Cactus, Bang Ended Scoot, Laura's 11-year-old fan. Oh, that's a Laura ones. Aww. Proud Raven Puff, hero with a hundred fandoms, and marry me Draco. Okay. Draco's not real. You can't marry him. <laughs> uh, just kidding. You can marry anybody you want. Okay. Uh, next week's question is I did with Andrew in mind. <gasps> Eventually released in 2017, what is the name of the song that Bruce Springsteen wrote for <laughs> Harry Potter between 1998 and 2001 and offered to Chris Columbus for use in the first Harry Potter film. I'm a big Springsteen fan for anybody who doesn't know. And I was shook when I found that out a few years ago. And it I finally, was surprised it surfaced. Yeah, it, it finally, finally is out. It was in like the Library of Congress and then it leaked some other way and it's crazy. <laughs> anyway, submit your answer to us on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash quizich. 
or click on Quizich on the main top menu. I thought the question was going to be about like my new vibrating broomstick, like what year did Mattel make the toy, <laughs> something like that. Those are all uh, viable questions for the future. I thought it wasn't living up to your expectations. It just, I wanted a little more oomph. Power? I'm sorry, you wanted a little more oomph? Oomph. Yes. Oomph. <laughs> I wanted a little oomph, more not from this 20-year-old children's toy. <laughs> yeah. A couple other reminders. Be sure to follow the show for free in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And do leave us a review if they allow you to leave reviews. And thanks to everybody who does leave a review. We love reading those. You can also follow us on social media. We are MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew, the Sorcerer's and Philosopher's Stone. I'm Eric, the uh, little card that you get inside a chocolate frog. I'm Micah, the Hogwarts goat keeper. I'm Laura, the ghost whisperer, and I could probably get Peeves to be in the movie if they redid the movie. That's so cute. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.